Well, welcome everybody here. Um, give you a little bit of background on me. I'm actually what's called a geoscientist, which is a little different from geology in that a geologist would specialize in something like seismology or volcanology or mineralogy. Uh, a geoscientist has to have all of that, along with chemistry, biology, physics. So uh, I guess I'm well-rounded in the sciences, if you will. But included in that is paleontology. And as part of my education, I actually had to work as a paleontologist for a little while. So it's kind of like, OK, this is, in a little way, old hat to me. So anyway, we're looking at paleontology. And so I kind of wanted to let us see what is paleontology. And now my computer's nuts. There we go. Um, paleontology just really is a science where you're uh, dealing with the life in the past through the fossil record. Okay, we look at the fossil remains to determine what kind of life forms lived in the past. And uh, there's a process that we go through where fossils are formed, and I kind of wanted to give you some information on that. Um, when a life form dies, uh, a lot of times it'll lay on the surface and just deteriorate there, but a lot of times it gets buried in sediment, which is dirt that gets washed over the top of it, covers it up, and that dirt eventually starts turning into things like rock that we know as sandstone. Well, if it covers up a living, or previously living, now dead uh, life form, which could include plants or uh, animals, including people, um, a process begins where the tissues in that living form uh, deteriorate and leave a void in the rock. And what happens then is minerals then come in and start filling up that void. And if you look at a fossil, it's not really uh, a bone or uh, a shell. It's actually a rock that's been replaced, or that has replaced where that was. And I, I brought some stuff, and I'd, I'm like, John, if you want to just hand some of these out so they can look at them. Okay, there's a, I have shells and petrified wood and, and some other uh, life forms, former life forms in there that you can look at. But what I want you to notice as you look at them is they are not, they're not life, uh, not tissue that's been fossilized. They're rocks. There's shells there that are actually a rock. They're not made out of bone. They're not made out of calcium carbonate. There are, um, what happens is uh, the bone is made out of, um, of what was it, phosphorus carbonate. And then shells are generally calcium carbonate. And uh, so those dissolve in water eventually. And so then, uh, like I said, the minerals will come in and replace that. So if you look up there on the upper left, that's the void. And then what's on the lower right then is the, uh, where the minerals have come in and now replaced the bone tissue or the, the shell tissue or even um, things like trees and plants. Now, trees and plants rot fairly quickly and disappear fairly quickly, but that doesn't always happen. Oftentimes, those non-hard uh, tissues will get fossilized. Now, I want you to remember that because that's important later on. 
that we, it's not always things like bone and shell that get fossilized. Petrified wood, some of the stuff that's going around is petrified wood. It is actually stone, but it used to be a tree. And so now that tree is no longer made out of uh, the living tissues. It's now made out of rock. So we do have times when uh, the softer tissues are preserved and fossilized. We have a guy here, oops, went back the wrong way. Guy here named Bill Phillips. Now, Bill Phillips, I gotta look at my notes about him. He's, he's an interesting guy. Um, he uh, is a Nobel Prize winner. He's not just uh, some guy that's gonna be talking to us. Um, as an American physicist, who shared the Nobel Prize in physics in 1997. So he's not a lightweight in the world of science. This, this is a pretty big guy here as far as uh, uh, knowing what he's talking about. So anyway, I uh, want to show the video for you. He's talking about the uh, relationship between religion and science. So will get it going here. I've got to get my thing up here where I can start it. All right. Where'd you go? There you are. Well, first of all, I, I should say that I, I'm not particularly comfortable with being described as a religious person because somehow I have this image in my mind of, of somebody who's, who's very uh, proper and, uh, and prim and follows all sorts of rituals and stuff. And, and I, I like rather to describe myself as a person of faith. Um, and uh, clearly, I don't believe that science has made belief in God obsolete, or else I wouldn't describe myself as a person of faith. Uh, I believe that certain uh, ways of interpreting uh, certain scriptures have been made obsolete by science, but that in no way makes religious faith or belief in God obsolete. It just requires what I would consider to be a, uh, a different outlook, a maturation of religious faith. But if we look at the history of religious faith as told in the scriptures and as seen uh, throughout history, I think the entire history of faith has been one of a maturation of that faith. I see it not so much as people becoming more mature in their faith, but God challenging people to become more mature, to get a clearer understanding of what God wants for uh, humankind, and I think God is always pushing us to be better than what we are. Okay, so there's two ways of answering that question. By and large, science and religion deal with different kinds of questions. Science deals with questions about how do things come to be the way they are, how should I think about the way things are, how shall I organize uh, my understanding of the way things behave. Whereas religion deals with questions like, how should I behave toward my fellow human creatures? What should my relationship be to God? How should I understand the ultimate origins of this world and this universe in which we live? These are very different kinds of questions, but sometimes the areas that science addresses and the areas that uh, religion addresses can overlap. So I don't ascribe to the um, idea of science and religion as being non-overlapping magisteria, as they've sometimes been described. But I also will 
say that by and large they deal with different kinds of questions. But there are ethical questions that might involve things like medical ethics or environmental questions where you have to understand the science in order to be able to make good ethical decisions that are guided by your religious principles. So there's always going to be places where science and religion are going to come to bear on the same kinds of problems. Okay, being a scientist myself, I've been at the church and all of that. How can you be a scientist and be religious? Well, I have a really simple answer to that. Science tells me what happened and how. My religion tells me why. Because God made it happen that way. And if you look at science, science is very organized. Our world is very organized. It has rules that are followed and these rules have existed for a long time, all the way through our history. And why is that? Because that's the way God made it. He made things to work today the way they always have, so that things don't change. Our world stays um, following these rules and acting the way that it should be. Um, I want to look at the fossil record here. If I get to the next slide... Oops. Okay. In our fossil record, I want you to remember that the fossil record is the only place where we have any evidence of the life forms that have existed in the past. There are no other places where we can find out what has existed before. None of us were there. None of us were around thousands of years ago, millions of years ago. We weren't there. So we don't know anything except what we can find in the fossil record. So one of the things that is important about that is that uh, we see similarities and we see differences in those fossils. Okay, and we have a, a way that we want to look at those in which we classify them. And we have different ways of classifying them. Uh, not different ways, but I mean different areas where we classify them. We call them phyla. Uh, we call them uh, all kinds of different things where we start, okay, one place, okay, this is a basic structure. Okay, this is a part of that basic structure. This is a part of it. So we classify them into different species and all kinds of, well, the lady's going to talk about it here, so I'll let you, let you um, look at what she has to say. Now, what we call that is taxonomy. That's our method for classifying things. So let's go ahead and uh, get this lady. You may need to turn the sound up on this one. Hi, I'm Emerald Robinson, and in this What Is video, we're going to discuss taxonomy. Taxonomy is a system that biologists use to group organisms based on similar characteristics. Taxonomy is based on a concept called homology shared characteristics that have been passed down from a common ancestor. Although humans have been classifying organisms by various methods since ancient times, Swedish biologist Carolus Linnaeus is considered to be the father of modern taxonomy. His most famous work, Systema Natura, established a system we still use today to determine an organism's scientific name. 
This system is called binomial nomenclature. To understand what makes up the binomial nomenclature, we need to start at the top. Classic biological taxonomy usually places an organism into one of five kingdoms, bacteria, protists, plants, fungi, or animals. Each organism is then classified into the following groups, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. It is the genus and species that makes up an organism's scientific name. For example, the scientific name for humans is Homo sapiens, where Homo's the genus and sapiens the species. Sometimes scientists classify organisms using a three-domain system. The three currently accepted domains are archaea, single-celled microorganisms that tend to live in extreme environments like very high heat or salt concentration, bacteria, which are abundant and live in most habitats on Earth, and eukaryotes, any organism made of cells which contain a membrane-bound nucleus. Although we used to classify organisms based on characteristics that could be seen by the naked eye or under a microscope, today we commonly rely on analyzing an organism's DNA instead. Scientists will continue to use these means to classify the approximately 15,000 new species that are identified each year. I like that DNA thing. You realize if you look at DNA, you're very closely related to a potato? <laughs> Didn't realize that, did you? So, or even a frog. So, uh, yeah, it's a, <laughs> kind of an interesting uh, thing that uh, we probably don't think about too often. Oops, all right, wait a minute. All right. So basically, what do we have when we're looking at taxonomy? We're looking at a system of classifying that's based on common characteristics. So we look at those common characteristics. That is the basis for the theory of evolution. So we're looking at the common characteristics. And then we look at Darwinian evolution and their way of looking at things. Common descent. They're looking at all of uh, the characteristics and trying to trace them back to a common ancestor, which in the theory of evolution happens to be a single cell thing that existed three and a half billion years ago. Um, it relies on a principle of science called uniformitarianism, which... If you understand the idea of uniform, it means same, okay? And in this theory, uh, or this uh, principle, states that Earth's geologic processes that we see today have always existed in the same manner. The things that we see happening today have always happened in the same way and with the same intensity that we see happening today. So uh, they try to trace that back or use that, in that, theory, that uh, principle to trace back to that very early single-cell creature about three and a half billion years ago. Now, to them, all of this that we have today is the result of what they call small changes. The, the basic idea there is, that, okay, we have that single cell and then its DNA mutated in a way and so then we had a two-cell creature, and then that mutated somewhere along the line and became maybe a four-cell creature, almost like, you know, 
fertilization of the human embryo. Okay, so but anyway, the whole idea behind that is that very slowly, because of mutations, all of these other life forms have uh, developed, and they call that natural selection. So each, through that process, entirely new phyla or types of creatures or types of living organisms have developed. And they come up with this, uh, this tree. And down at the very bottom of that tree would be the single cell. And then over time, things keep branching out and branching out, and you keep getting new phyla all the time. There's only one little problem with that. And it's called the Cambrian explosion. I say little problem. I'm being kind of facetious with that because it's a major problem with the theory of evolution. Okay? The, the whole idea behind the theory of evolution is that we developed all of these things slowly over a long period of time. Well, what does the word explosion mean to you? Something, I mean, okay, we all of a sudden got a lot of phyla all at one time. All right, so I'm going to let another gentleman speak to us here. And we've got to get back up here and get that where that will play. All right, wake up. If evolution were true, the fossil record should show one type of animal life in the lowest layers, then two, then four, and so on. But Darwin himself had a difficult time explaining what we now call the Cambrian explosion of life. Cambrian rock layers contain nearly all the basic animal forms, including echinoderms, arthropods, and even chordates, with no trace of transitional fossils in lower pre-Cambrian rocks. And each fossil exhibits amazing complexity. For example, Cambrian arthropods had advanced compound eyes, like we see today in dragonflies and bees. The eyes were tuned to the way light travels through water, allowing the creature to see interconnected lenses. Compare that to only one lens in each human eye. Cambrian rocks also contain fossil fish that look like today's lancelids and hagfish. The fish had perfectly crafted skeletal supports inside their bodies, an opposite arrangement from Cambrian arthropods like trilobites. The Cambrian layers show an amazing amount of diversity and complexity. Evolutionists claim it happened in a mere 5 to 10 million years, the equivalent to a blink of an eye in so-called geologic time. Sudden appearance? Instant complexity? That doesn't sound much like evolution. Instead, the fossil record shows fully formed creature groups right from the start. Can you see where that's a problem? In the theory of evolution, all of this stuff developed slowly. Well, where did all of this stuff come from during the Cambrian period, just like that? I mean, it's like, in geologic time, we're talking about that. Snapping your fingers, okay? So, uh, they've got some major problems there. One of the things that he mentioned was transitional species. Okay, what we're talking about is, all right, let's say we had a, the, maybe a small, fish that developed. And we're going to say that that fish then grew into human beings, right? That's a hypo. I'm just throwing that out there to think about. Okay, from the fish to the human being, there should be some transitional species visible in the fossil record, shouldn't there? We should see that fish maybe develop arms or maybe along the line develop legs and then maybe the ability to walk on land that's the transitional species. We should see some of those 
in the fossil record. Well, guess what? We don't. Before the Cambrian period, there are no transitional species showing a change from that little thing to what we have at the end of the, the uh, Cambrian period. Now, in the world of evolution, there's two different kinds of evolution I want you to think about. One's macroevolution, where a whale turns into a dog. Okay, we don't see that, do we? And then there's microevolution. Okay, so you have a dog, and that dog then evolves into several different kinds of dog. But guess what? They're still dogs, aren't they? They're not something new. We have breeders today that breed new kinds of dogs. So microevolution, we can, we can pretty much be sure that, hey, that works. Okay, microevolution is why people today are taller than people used to be. Microevolution might be why we're a little chunkier than we used to be because we're not working as hard and we're eating more. But that's microevolution. But we don't have any evidence, and you'll see this in evolution a lot, we have no evidence of apes becoming men. They try to point at some transitional species, but when you start examining those transitional species, they're not transitional species. We have to be real. One of my favorite stories I told when I was teaching is there was uh, one skeleton that they had that they claimed was a man or an ape transition to a man because it walked over, stooped over all the time. Well, at one point, a doctor uh, who, who specialized in uh, medicines looked at that. He said, well, of course it is walked bent over. It's the worst case of arthritis I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, so those are kinds of things. Uh, we, we try to claim that a skull is a transition from apes to man. Um, a lot of those have been uh, already poopawed and said, you know, that, that could have been. So anyway, the biggest problem we have is that there are no uh, transitional species. Get back over here and give that one. So... We don't have any transitional species. We had that sudden explosion of life. Not just a sudden explosion of life, but a sudden explosion of life with fully formed bodies. Okay? And not only were they fully formed, they were very complex. And all of these, these four points here completely defy the theory of evolution in the, in the fossil record. So we can't be going by that. So, so really, if we start looking at it, this tree is upside down. Because if you go back into the history and look in the fossil record, we've got a little problem. About 99% of the species that have ever existed on this earth no longer exist. In other words, we've gone the other way. We've gotten fewer and fewer species. Right now we've got about 10 to 14 million different species on earth, whereas before we had like 5 billion. So the tree's upside down. We need to turn that tree over. Okay, uh, let me give you another little look at the Cambrian explosion being a, a rather long video here. If Started? Okay. A second proof usually offered is the fossil record. According to most biology textbooks, fossils show the gradual development of life from simple to complex over hundreds of millions of years. 
But a growing number of scientists say that this textbook story is incomplete and even misleading because it ignores an extraordinary event in the history of life known as the Cambrian Explosion. The Cambrian Explosion is a term that refers to the geologically sudden appearance of all the major, or most of the major groups of animals uh, at about the same time, geologically speaking. Most geologists date the Cambrian Explosion at 530 to 520 million years ago. The Cambrian Explosion is uh, a name given to a geologic event, really, the appearance in the fossil record over a period of about 10 million years or slightly less of uh, skeletonized fauna that includes uh, many living phyla for the first time. Animals with similar body plans are grouped together to form various phyla. Indeed, if you look at the tree of life, you can infer that nearly or all living phyla had evolved by the end of the explosion period. The Cambrian Explosion has been called life's big bang, or at least animal's big bang, because uh, in the Cambrian Explosion, most of the major forms of animals appear very suddenly in a geological sense. From nothing, we have almost everything, almost overnight, geologically speaking. This remains mysterious. Nobody really understands how this happened. The explosion is real in the sense that the fossils are real. There they are. Explaining it, however, is, is controversial. We're not sure. Uh, just how far back animals originated before the explosion or what the events were that led up to it. In Darwin's theory, if you think of the branching tree, Darwin's branching tree, the common ancestor down here and the different modern forms of animals up here, you would have one form to begin with and then it would gradually diverge into slightly different forms and more and more different until you get the major differences that we see now. The problem with the Cambrian explosion is that all these major differences appear together at the same time with no fossil evidence that they descended from this common ancestor. You have a sudden emergence of new biological form and structure and the suddenness of it defies the Darwinian mechanism's ability to produce new structure. Darwin believed that his mechanism must act slowly through small, gradual, incremental changes. And as a result, he expected to find many transitional, intermediate forms from the very simplest organisms to the first animals. Darwin knew about the Cambrian fossil record and he considered, considered it uh, a serious problem for his theory. He hoped that future fossil collecting would fill in the gaps somewhat and uh, make the theory more plausible. But in fact, 150 years of continued fossil collecting have made the problem worse. Many more types of animals were involved than Darwin knew about. 
So it's actually more of an explosion now than Darwin thought it was. Most biology textbooks, however, supply little information about the Cambrian explosion, if they even mention it at all. My textbook gives a one-sentence statement, just that there was this Cambrian explosion of life. But then it goes on to give a traditional Darwinian theory as to this slow, gradual, evolving process. DeHart wanted to supplement the solitary sentence in the biology textbook with an article that appeared in the Boston Globe. The article reported on cutting-edge research by Chinese scientist J.Y. Chen, an internationally respected paleontologist at the Nanjing Institute of Paleontology and Geology. Chen's discoveries in the fossil beds in Xinjiang, China, have rocked the scientific establishment. Located in the province of Yunnan in southern China, Xinjiang has some of the world's best preserved fossils from the Cambrian era. Darwinism helps them maybe only telling a part story for evolution. According to Chen, the fossils he's discovered turn Darwin's tree of life upside down. Darwin's tree, you know, uh, reverse conscious, very unexpectedly. Our research is convincing uh, major phyla starting down below at the beginning of Cambrian. Base is white, gradually narrow, so this is almost uh, turned down differently. I do not believe that animals developed gradually from the bottom up. I think the animals suddenly appeared. Among the Qingjiang animals, we have found 136 different kinds of animals, and they represent diversity in the level of phyla and classes. So the sudden appearance makes them very special. One view that many paleontologists hold is that though the phyla appeared suddenly during the Cambrian explosion, there must have been a long period of evolutionary development before that event. Some people believe that uh, it was a very rapid origin of these body plans. Other people believe that it was a long, gradual build-up to it, which I, which I think is probably right. But there must have been a prehistory in which it started at the bottom and worked up to the phylum. If there was a long history of evolution prior to the Cambrian explosion, there should be an abundance of transitional fossils. Or perhaps those animals were too small or soft-bodied to be preserved. The Darwinists have known since the 19th century that the Cambrian explosion did not conform to the picture of life that Darwin proposed. But one of their explanations for that was something called the artifact hypothesis, the idea that we were simply not sampling the fossil record sufficiently to find the missing transitional intermediates. In the strata just beneath the Cambrian fossil beds, we have a very favorable environment that would have preserved uh, ancestral forms of these animals had they existed. So one of the versions of the artifact hypothesis was the claim that we don't find these missing Precambrian animals because they were too small and they were soft-bodied. And what we now find in the Chinese fossils, in the beds just beneath the Cambrian explosion, are perfectly preserved soft-bodied tissues, 
sponge embryos that are, of course, soft and microscopic. The new finds in the Chengjiang formations really completely put to rest the artifact hypothesis. If you can preserve an embryo, you can preserve an animal. And if those animals were there, then we should have found them. And they're not there. Some defenders of Darwin's theory argue that random mutations in a special set of genes called Hox genes are responsible for dramatically speeding up the evolutionary process during the Cambrian period. But what's interesting to me is that these genes are turned on late in development, long after the body plan is established. A fruit fly is already a fruit fly embryo before the Hox genes kick in. The same for a human, or a worm, or a starfish. So without a mechanism for sudden mutation, or a record of transitional fossils, Critics say Darwin's theory lacks the evidence it needs to account for the remarkable Cambrian explosion. If you talk to an evolutionist, they're going to look at the evidence through a filter of their bias, their belief system. Now, as a true scientist, I have to look at the evidence and figure out what the evidence is telling me. Not based on my beliefs or what I want the evidence to tell me. And if the evidence is not telling me what I want to know, then I need to change what I know, don't I? You talk to an evolutionist, they won't do that. They're so stuck in the theory of evolution that they don't see all of the problems with it. One of them being, and I said to remember this later, you're going to take a look at my time here. One of the, one of the things that uh, we have to do is look at what happened before the Cambrian evolution, or Cambrian explosion. Okay, remember I said soft tissues will be preserved in the fossil record, didn't I? And I, I passed around some examples of it. Um, I have, if I can get my box open, I have a lot of plant fossils, um, parts of plants, plant stems, things like that. Uh, I think one of the things going around is a plant fossil, it's another plant fossil. Okay, the thing of it is, we don't have any of that before the Cambrian explosion. The ones that I have are all post-Cambrian explosions, so, but they are evidence that soft tissues will be preserved in the fossil record. But the evolutionists say, well, we don't have anything before the Cambrian explosion because they just all rotted away. Well, why would they all rot away before the Cambrian explosion, but not after? You see what's wrong with that argument? But that's the kind of arguments you're going to hear from evolutionists. They're always going to come up with that. All right, well... Let's look at the problems. No transitional species. That's paramount to the theory of evolution, transitional species, but they aren't there. Sudden explosion of life can't be explained with the theory of evolution, okay? Because we would have to have all of those things before showing that this is coming. We're getting fully formed bodies. The other thing that's a problem for evolutionists is highly complex 
bodies. Those first cells were highly complex. Evolutionists believe that that happened because a bunch of proteins came together. But how in the world are a bunch of proteins going to come together with all of the complexity of a cell in order for that cell to function? If you really get into looking at what is in a cell and how it works, just a single cell, it's really complex. It's a lot more complex than a bunch of proteins coming together and maybe a, a lightning strike making it live. In fact, we've tried to duplicate that and never been able to do it. Okay, and then this geologic instant idea is, is there. Um, we've got a guy named James Valentine. He was in that uh, video there. And I want to play something that he has to say. All right, where are you? Why can't Darwin's origin of species account for the origin of phyla? The origin of phyla present a particular problem because they all appear in the geological record at, during a very narrow window of geological time. All of them that uh, are well skeletonized so that we have a chance of actually finding them in the fossil record appear in a very narrow window of time. Naturally, some of the little minute ones that are soft-bodied we either never see it all, or we just see once in a while when we get lucky. So you really can't tell when they've begun, when they've begun from the fossil record itself. But for the ones that have good skeletons and a pretty good chance of being preserved, they just come in uh, lickety-split in this big explosive, explosive appearance. So. How many phyla have arisen since the Cambrian? None. And they all came in then, as far as we can tell. Let's say the fossil record is consistent with the model that they all originated within that 30 million year frame. How long did it take the major body plans to appear? A good guess would be about 30 million years, but uh, each phylum did not necessarily take 30 million years to originate. And, uh, on the contrary, it, it, it may have been just a few million years or even less to generate the body plans that we call phyla from their ancestral body plans. But the window stayed open for maybe 30 million years during which successive waves of phyla appeared. What has prevented the evolution of new phyla since the Cambrian explosion? Well, one would guess the presence of, of the phyla that the world sort of filled up. That is, there are no vast areas of environmental space that are open, so there are no adaptive opportunities for novelties to occur. There have been a, a few really big extinctions during geological time, of course. The biggest of all was in the Promo-Triassic, when perhaps over 90% of the world species disappeared. But we didn't get any new phyla in afterwards, even though there were a lot of adaptive space open, so a lot of opportunities, probably because we already had all the phyla and uh, a few species made it through, or, or numbers of species, made it through from each phyla, so there they are. And it, they fill up adaptive space a lot quicker than if evolution, so to speak, started all over and had to invent a whole new phylum. So what you get is simply branches off the major trunks of the phyla you've already got. 
Why can't microevolution be extrapolated to account for major evolutionary change? It, of course, there is a population genetics of all changes, of all uh, changes, evolutionary changes. So, in a sense, all the changes are microevolutionary in that they have to pass through a populational process. But the kinds of changes that are usually visualized as microevolutionary are changes to structural gene, which change eye color or uh, growth rates or something like that. And it's, it can't be simple, single changes like that added up that produce the new phyla because they come in much too fast. Um, the rate of change in species lineages through time is well known. We've got half a billion years of looking at it. And uh, the rate at which new morphology originated uh, near the base of the Cambrian is 540 million year time intervals. Uh, just much too fast. Can paleontologists trace the animal phyla back to a common ancestor? No, there's no fossil evidence for the very first animal. But if you go back beyond the base of the Cambrian, we do have a fairly rich fossil record of perhaps 40 or 50 million years before the, this explosion occurred. And the body plans of the organisms there don't really help us in understanding uh, what went on during the transition. Uh, the, the ancestors of the, most of the phyla that we see from the Cambrian up are not represented by soft-body fossils, though we have trails and tracks that had to be left by organisms of a certain grade because in order to furrow the sediment, you need, for example, body wall muscles and uh, some kind of hydrostatic skeleton that permits you to antagonize them in order to make furrows of the kind we see. And some of these furrows have fecal pellets in them, so we know and right through they weren't like flatworms or something. And uh, to do that requires a certain complexity. And we can trace the change in complexity of animals. Uh, maybe the best single index of complexity is the number of cell types you have. Of course, uh, protozoa have just one cell type, right? And uh, uh, we have 210. You look at a jellyfish, it's got maybe 10 or 12. Look at a mollusk, it's got maybe in the low 40s, and, and so on. So that uh, as, uh, as time went on, uh, the number of cell types and therefore the complexity of the body plans of organisms increased. And it's pretty linear if you plot it against geological time. How long did it take to produce the disparity of the phyla? How much diversity existed within each phylum in the Cambrian? Well, we can't actually determine from, since we, we don't have a record of these phyla earlier, we can't actually measure how long it, it took them to arise. The one way to get at this, the very indirect way, is by the cell type number, which gives us kind of a, a measure of how fast complexity increases. And we know about how complex a body plan has to be in order, in order to exist at that, at that level, at that grade of complexity. Most of the phyla that appear uh, have very few species 
at first. And indeed, if you use some sneaky way to estimate how many species there were in the Lower Cambrian, and then count up the numbers of, say, classes or orders there were, why it turns out that its ballpark analysis would be about every 40th species was at least a new class, something like that. Now, up in there, um, go on to our next slide. You can see he's got a lot of problems he's trying to deal with in explaining why things aren't there that should be there. And so, I mean, he's an evolutionist, and he's questioning or explaining why things aren't quite the way they should be. Um, if you need to go pick up a child, it's uh, time to go do that for you. But anyway, uh, key takeaways from this today. All of the major phyla that we see today appear during the Cambrian period. We still have no transitional body plans before or after the Cambrian period, and we have no new phyla since the Cambrian period. Remember, the tree of life is actually inverted. Even Mr. Valentine said that. Okay, so we got a we got a lot of problems with the theory of evolution as presented by the evolutionists. But a lot of scientists are questioning that now and going, "Wait a minute, there's too many problems here for this to be a really valid." Uh, theory. Now, I used to have to teach evolution, but guess how I taught it? Well, this is what the theory says, but look at all the problems with it. That was the way I taught it. And so I, I people come and question me about it. I said, you know what? The problems are there. We can't deny that. Okay. So anyway, um, pretty much, uh, hopefully you got an understanding of, of really what the problems with evolution are from this, and uh, the problems are major, major problems. Um, how did the life forms, is that what we're gonna look at with the chemistry part? Chemistry is next week. Chemistry is next week, okay. So, how did non-life become life? That's another big problem with evolution. They have not been able to identify that process. They haven't come up with an answer for that. Well, we know what the answer is, you know. We even know what the answer for the Cambrian evolution is. Why did we get that big explosion? God wanted it to happen. That's why it happened. And so uh, we need to keep that in mind as we look at all these things. So next week, um, I guess we're going to be looking at the chemistry. Who's teaching that? John's going to be back with us teaching that one. So. <laughs>